G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to a special edition of the Doctor Who show where, as promised, we're going to take some time out and talk to Dave about the Sophie Aldred Sirens of Audio event that happened here in Sydney back on May the 13th. Dave, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, and happy birthday, Rob. <laughs> thank you very much. It's my birthday, folks, as we're recording this, not as you're listening to this. <laughs> no, no, you've, you've missed it for another year, unfortunately. Yes, but I'm having a lovely day here today. Thank you all for uh, your kind words, those of you who took the time. <laughs> anyway, Dave, it's been a couple of weeks now since Sophie Aldred was in Sydney. You travelled up to the event. What inspired you to do this? Because you've met Sophie before. Look, it all came, as many things in fandom do, from a podcast. Mm-hmm. Which, um, look, look, as listeners know, both on the Doctor Who show and indeed when I've guested on 42 to Doomsday, you and I, Rob, or myself and Mark and Richard and Rob from 42 to Doomsday have discussed nostalgically uh, conventions and fan events we used to go to back mm. in the day yeah. and, and sort of been very wistful that now fan events and particularly conventions are very much commercially run you 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 come in you pay a huge amount of money you're sort of herded past the guests to get to see them at a distance and wave at them or you can pay thousands of dollars for a photo or whatever and and there really isn't that fan experience as you're just you know cattle mm-hmm. in a call and, and 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 you know we've sort of found when we have these conversations that our views are echoed not just here in australia but really across uh the the podcasting world as well and look the guys over at diddly dumb have spoken about it and how the capital conventions that they're the official podcast of now have have really tried to go back to that fan run vibe Mm. and look out of these conversations i was contacted by phil and Dwayne from the sirens of audio podcast uh who i i met when i guested on their show to talk about a couple of big finish stories a little while ago and they said look we totally agree with you and and Phil said, look, I'm giving it a crack. I'm going to run some fan events. Mm. And in fact, I'm getting Janet and Sophie out for one. And I said, well, that's fantastic. That's a lovely idea. If you run it in Melbourne, I'll definitely definitely be there. And, and I can you know, hook you up with some people who, who could probably help to put it together. But um, if it's somewhere else, I'll try and get there. Now, in the end, he wasn't able to do Janet and Sophie at the same time. They ended up being two different days. Uh, and I couldn't make it to the... Uh, the Janet Fielding event. The day that they had the event in Sydney, I had a, a work commitment I just couldn't get out of, and the other one was in Hobart. And the the, the cost of flying down to Hobart and sort of staying for a couple of days for what was a sort of a smaller event uh, was something I couldn't justify for, for, for someone I've met before. Mm-hmm. But it made me even more determined to say, look, I will be there for Sophie Aldred. I, I want to support these events. I want to get behind what it is you're doing. And uh, so there was an event in Sydney and I said, well, that's fine. I have friends in Sydney. I'll go up to Sydney and um, I'll, I'll, have, I'll have a weekend of it. Um, just to put it in perspective for, for those in the UK, Melbourne, Sydney is sort of London, Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a few hours drive. It's, a, it's an hour and a half flight. So it, it is a trek. But yeah, that's, that's how it all sort of came about. It was just this, this idea Phil had that, yeah, we all say we need to do fan run events again. I'm going to do one. Yeah, exactly. So it was as much the vibe of the event as it was the guest, I guess. Yeah, look, it, it absolutely was. I mean, you know, Sophie is still a draw card, and it is a quarter of a century since I last <laughs> did meet Sophie Aldrin. So, uh, you know, she's definitely somebody who I have incredibly fond memories of. So, you know, it, it was it was lovely to have her as the hook. 
but but part of it was just purely this well i've been saying for several years now on podcasts let's have more fan events someone's going to have a crack the least i can do is rock up and give him a ticket price yeah exactly now the first thing i recall from this weekend is i think on facebook messenger you sent me a picture of a gold and cream imperial dalek and said i think i'm in the right place <laughs> It really was a quite wonderful uh, opening to the event. So the the event was in Parramatta, which is about a 40-minute train trip from where mm-hmm. I was staying in central Sydney. Um, very easy to get to and, and then sort of a 10-minute walk straight down the main road of Parramatta to the uh, the event. And, and as it is, you know, you've sort of, you know, you're walking down the street and you're going, oh, it's at, it's at 357 Central Street or whatever it was. And you sort of go, mm-hmm. is that one? Is that one? Oh, no, that's a Macca's. Oh, that's a chicken shop. It can't be. Oh, oh, well, this looks like the right place. And then somebody wearing a Peter Davison costume, not a cricket costume, as you've told us, Rob. Um, <laughs> yeah, very important, folks. Go watch the video. You know, sort of, sort of comes out of the door, sort of looking, obviously looking for breakfast, having found the right place. I'm like, ah, oh, I know where I am. And, and then as I sort of go up to, you know, level one, there is a cream and gold imperial Dalek looking at me. And it's like, yeah, I'm in the right place. I'm at a Doctor Who fan event. This is this is really weird and really cool. I haven't done this for a very long time. It looked really good because I assume it's, it's obviously a fan-made prop, but by God, it looked good. Yeah, it, it did look good. It was all hooked up with the electronics and the sound card and everything. So it did Dalek stuff. It didn't exterminate anyone, fortunately, but it might have been able to if it wanted. I don't know. <laughs> now, unlike, I guess, regular punters, unlike the guy dressed as Davo who you saw, you were actually there not just as a punter, but as someone with a job on the day. So do you want to talk a little about that before we talk about Sophie? Uh, yeah, so again, I, I said in my conversations with Phil you know, if I can do anything to help, please, please let me know. And he sent a message and said, well, look, I need somebody to do a little bit of interviewing with maybe one of the other guests or a bit of presenting. Are you, are you sort of happy? Mm. And I was like, yeah, look, I, I can do that. You know, I do I, I do podcasting. I, I prep people for interviews all the time. I can, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure I can do the other side of the mic. That's, that's fine. He said, oh, yeah, great. I'll let you know. And then I got a message a week or so later that said, Kate Orman and John Blum have agreed to come along. Are you happy to interview them on stage? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? Like I, I've met them both again. We're talking talking in the nineties. Oh, um, yeah. I, I had met them, but you know I've read their work. I know, I know of them. I'm, I'm sure I can ask some pertinent questions about them. Yeah, happy to do that. And suddenly it was a, it was a thing on Twitter. Like, hey, everybody, Dave from the Doctor Who show is interviewing Kate Orman and John Blum. I'm like, I, I don't think I'm the catch here, but that's okay. You were locked in at that point. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go for it. Yeah. So so I was I was sort of there to to help out and and be involved and. Um, that, that did mean that I sort of didn't get, you know, celebrity status or anything remotely wanky like that. But, you know, I got introduced to Sophie when she was sort of was being brought up by uh, by Todd from um, Flight Through Entirety, who mm-hmm. was helping out as the, the sort of the minder for the day. I noticed uh, Todd was sitting next to Sophie when she was autographing. Yes. Yeah, so, so Todd, Todd, I first met Todd in 1996 when he was the minder and sort of guest liaison for Liz Sladen at Whovention 3. So what are we now? Nearly 30 years on and Todd is again doing that same job at a fan event. So very, very good at it. Yeah, he has experience in this area. He, he absolutely does. But again, because, you know, I knew these guys when Sophie was sort of arrived, I, you know, they were kind enough to say, hey, Dave, come over, you know, I'll introduce you to Sophie again and all the rest of it. And look, we did have a lovely, quick conversation at that point because 
my friend Richard, who many of you may know as a guest sometimes here or on 42 to Doomsday, and of course my co-host on uh, Spacefall and the Goodies Pirate podcast, and someone I've known, you know, for most of my life. Hmm. And he, he ran the Time Storm convention in 1997, where Sophie Aldred was, I guess, in Australia for the weekend, and he, you know, put his blood and sweat and tears into that event. And he, he was sort of thinking about getting up to Sydney, but with a family work commitment, he just sort of couldn't quite make it all work and get up there. But he messaged me that morning and said, if you get a chance, please say hi to Sophie for me. Yeah. And so I, I suddenly had this chance. Here, here I was just chatting to Sophie, you know, hi, how are you? And I said, look, while I've got you for this moment, um, Richard from Timestorm, he may remember in Melbourne in 1997, wanted me to say hello to you. And she's looked at me with this big smile and gone, oh, is he not here? I was really hoping he was going to be here because I love that weekend in Melbourne and I have such fond memories of the city and I was really hoping that he was going to be here. So please, Aww. please send him my love. Oh, and um, So it was just that, that just sort of set everything up between, between a lovely quick conversation with Sophie and just arriving to see friends in fandom who I've never met in person before, but you, you feel like you know them and a Dalek. <laughs> it just was like, yeah, okay. I because there was a moment when you, you know, you're on a train out to Parramatta, having mm-hmm. flown interstate for a thing, and you're like, what am I doing? Yeah, <laughs> this, this has cost me hundreds of dollars, and I'm giving up a day. And I'm, I, this, oh gee, this better be yeah. good. Like, what? Yeah. What if this is terrible? And yeah. um, and so very quickly, those 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 concerns were very quickly dispelled. It was a oh. wonderful opening. Good. And I was going to say just quickly, Sophie has been to many, many, many things over the years. She's one of the more regular sort of Doctor Who people getting out there at things. I'm sure there are events she has forgotten over time. But that trip to Australia where Richard did the time storm thing, she was here on honeymoon, wasn't she? That's right. We, we basically paid for her and her husband to have a honeymoon in Australia as long as they spent the last week with us. Yeah, so very hard to forget you were in Australia for your honeymoon and went to a Doctor Who convention. So I would totally believe she remembered all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the committee, particularly Richard, did the whole touristy things sort of the days um, before and after that. We took her down to Phillip Island to see the penguins and yeah. and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, it, it, we, we, we tried to give the guests, when they used to come to Melbourne in the 90s, a proper tourist experience and 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 usually they'll agree to a lower fee in return for you know the touristy stuff so you know it was all it was all carefully worked (laughs) out um but look at that just sent it off to sort of a wonderful start and and then by then you know the crowds were pouring through the door there was there was a queue to get in and um somebody on the front table was sort of frantically saying to phil we've had more rock-ups than we thought we'd had like we've had we've had you know 15 people turn up who hadn't booked a ticket. We've got... Nice. And it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, they, they'd sold a very nice, healthy number of tickets and there's a whole bunch of people who've just rocked up. So it's going to be a good crowd here. And, and it was a good crowd. It was it was exactly the right size crowd you have where it's not so small, it's a little bit awkward, but not so big, it's impersonal. It was exactly the right crowd that you felt like this was a nice haul. It was the right number. Everybody got a chance. Anybody who wanted an autograph would have the chance to get one. Everyone who wanted a photo would have the chance to get one without there being just hours and hours of queues. Mm. Um, so it, it really was the perfect size event. Excellent. Now, I think Sophie would have been on stage first because I've heard your interview and you seem to be referring to Sophie having already been on. Is that correct? So Sophie did several appearances across the course of the day. Oh. She did an, an opening just interview where uh, the guys from Sirens of Audio did a, a sort of a proper structured interview with her on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, then she came out later and hosted a bit of a trivia quiz. 
And then she came out for the last part of the day, which was the audience Q&A. So uh, there was lots of different chances to see her. We basically had a day with Sophie Aldred. And so what I was doing was essentially some programming to give her a chance to go and have lunch and have a bit of a break and collect her thoughts, so to speak, and make sure there was still something hopefully worthwhile on stage, which is absolutely the right way to do it. And again, you see some of these commercial events where, as far as they're concerned, if the guest isn't on stage, that's your problem. Um, yeah. You know, you should be paying now to line up to get an autograph or a photo. And if you're not doing that, well, it's not my job to entertain you. You're a grown-up. Go away. Yeah, it sounds like some thought had gone into that because, I mean, even before the day, Dwayne contacted me and said, do you mind if we play your I Was a Teenage Time Lord piece that you threw up on YouTube? And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, do what you like sort of thing. So clearly they were thinking about having other things, whether it was audio, visual stuff, or whether it was you on stage talking to someone else to, to just keep people entertained. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of that sort of thought going on. And basically, any time you're in the hall, something was happening, whether it was on stage or on screen, there was always something happening, assuming you didn't want to just mingle and, and chat. And there, there were people I did just mingle and chat with. There were people, again, I hadn't seen for 20 years, and it was mm. nice to see them again. And look, as we mentioned briefly in our monthly show that came out earlier this week, there, there were moments where somebody was listening to uh, one of your videos or where somebody introduced me as, oh, this is Dave from the Doctor Who show. And you're like, <laughs> I'm like, well, hang on, I'm not a celebrity. You don't have to say it. And people are like, no, 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 I know you. I listen to the podcast. Yeah. That's that's the most bizarre feeling I've had in a very long time is people just knowing me because I'm on a podcast. That was really, really, really cool. But, but, but it was a wonderful icebreaker because you could be introduced to somebody and they feel like they know you. They feel like they, they, they know what your views are and stuff. And so they're just in with the conversation and you just carry on. And it's, it's, it's yeah, just a wonderful icebreaker. Gosh, it's an introvert's dream. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's talk about Sophie now on stage for that main interview. You, you were obviously watching that. What was that like, Dave? It was really good. Uh, it was good for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the hosts were very prepared and they knew what they wanted to ask, which is always good. Sophie herself is the consummate professional. She, as you said, Rob, she's done this many times. She sort of knows what she wants to say and what she wants to do, and she's very relaxed and very friendly. And she actually knows about her era. She can name all of her stories. Mm-hmm. She knows who the guest actors were. It's it's not like when you see some of the uh, you know people who are on stage in the 60s or 70s, and they're sort of like, oh, I've got a vague recollection of this, and <laughs> I don't know what that story was called. The, the one that this person turned up in, no, Sophie really knows. Yeah her material. But the other big point is, and the thing that really separated it from the last time I saw her, is of course she has been in Doctor Who since the last time I saw her. And in fact, only a few months ago. Yeah, with the with the well, with the then current Doctor. Yeah, amazing actually. Yeah, so uh, there was a part of me that sort of sat down and said, well, look, you know, I, I don't know how much I'm going to get out of this. I've met Sophie before. I've seen all the docos. I've watched Behind the Sofa. And then it clicked in my mind, like, of course, she's done the big centenary special or the big regeneration special with the, I guess, now immediate past doctor, Jodie Whittaker. Mm, mm. So suddenly she's got all of these new stories to tell. She can tell the story about how she got the first you know, phone call going, would you be interested? And yes, we're going to go through forward and do this. And how they had to keep it all a secret that she was doing this. And then what it was like working with Jodie Whittaker and what it was like working with Sylvester McCoy and the, the other stuff that she got to do uh, on stage and sort of help out in sort of other roles on 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 the stage and everything. She had, she had you know, another hour, hour and a half of just stories about Power of the Doctor 
to tell. And then there's all the questions about, you know, is there going to be a spin-off? Would you like to do a spin-off? And she's like, well, of course I'd love to do a spin-off, but you know, I'm not going to say on stage now if there is or isn't a spin-off. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was about to ask, I mean, we're not going to go through Sophie blow by blow, folks, because the sirens of audio people will likely put out that audio on their own podcast. Yes. And so I, I do want to sort of encourage everybody because it was the Sirens of Audio event, and they, they did host it, they did run it, and they did put their wallets on the line for this. So if you're cu- curious to hear everything that Sophie said, I'm not going to try and relay it to you ad hoc. I really encourage you to go and listen to it on the Sirens of Audio feed because uh, they, they absolutely deserve that attention. And and I think it'll be really interesting to listen to either way. Oh, absolutely. But I was I was going to say, you know, I was, I was curious if someone had put it to her, you know, is is there going to be an Ace spin-off series? Because of all the spin-off series that people are imagining in their heads, Ace seems to be one of the more likely ones. Even before we got the Disney deal, Dave, people were saying, I wish there was some Doctor Who spin-offs. Ace would be a logical one. Yeah, I, I think that it's uh, very clear that that is not a new question that's been put to Sophie in the last few years. <laughs> so she's got practice. <laughs> so she's had practice at answering that. Um, look, she she is very, very open about her enthusiasm for the show and her keenness to do anything they ask her to do. So um, Sophie's interest is not going to be the stumbling block to any special. So after she did that, did she then go off to her lunch or some signing and that's when you got on stage yourself? Uh, I think there was lunch signing and photos and then the trivia and then I was on stage. Oh gosh, okay. So basically I was the big break before her last main Q&A for the day to I think give her a bit of a chance to kind of refresh herself after everything else she'd done. Excellent. Now obviously this was to be with Kate Orman and John Blum, however something happened. Yeah, unfortunately Kate wasn't well and able to attend that day. Um, John assures us all that it was just a very minor thing and it's nothing to be concerned about, but you know, just enough that she can't come along to a convention that day. And he did read out a very polite message from Kate saying, I'm very sorry, I can't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I was given a heads up by Phil, I think a day before, that said, look, this is on the cards. Kate's going to try and get there, but be aware it might just be John. So I did sort of go through my questions and just made sure that all the ones where I'd said, you know, I want both of your takes on this, I could just say I want John's take on this. Or there were some where I was, rather than saying, Kate, I've got a question about this thing you did. I could say, John, do you have any thoughts about this thing Kate did? Yeah. And so <laughs> I was able to restructure it. And I did speak to John beforehand and he did sort of say, look, you know, he said, I'm Kate Orman's biggest fan. I've read all her work and I can talk with a reasonable authority on, you know, what she's done. And so I just sort of made sure the questions were sort of, you know, you change the question from why did you do this to what did you think about Kate doing this? Exactly. Well, I guess a chunk of her work, he's been a co-writer on. And uh, as you say, he's a great fan of her work, was a great fan of her work, I guess, before he'd even met her in real life. Now they're married, of course, have been married for 20, 25 years, whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, if there's anyone who's going to talk to her work who's not her, it's him. That's right. Plus, he's done work for Big Finish on his own. He's written for Bernie Summerfield on his own. So, yeah. So, if I've got a question about Bernie Summerfield, I can ask it with just as much validity to John as I could to Kate and John. Uh, and, and again, you know, I had some questions about the character of Ace and her legacy in the character of Ace and how it was carried on by Big Finish in one way and the New Adventures in a different way. And and John was able to answer those again just as well as Kate Kate of course would have had a slightly different insight because she was writing for Ace much earlier and did did those first solo works like the left-handed hummingbird and particularly set piece Mm -hmm. but but John was very able to hold the fort and fill out the time we had so that all that all worked fine 
Brilliant. How long had it been since you had spoken to a group of fans? T- taking away the podcast, of course. I mean, in real life. Would it be a decade since you were in the Victorian club doing stuff then? The last time I did it was when Richard and I were running the local club for the second time, which was the anniversary year. So it would be 10 years, yeah. Yeah, I thought it might be. <laughs> <laughs> any any cobwebs to shake off or did you just get in there and just go for it? Uh, look, there were a few cobwebs, but it was also slightly different in that when Richard and I would present in the past, it was kind of like just doing a podcast live. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of having a conversation with each other and we're very used to each other as you and I, Robert. You know, yeah, we, we, yeah. we sort of know each other's beats and we can kind of work with that. Whereas I met John once in 1998 um, and, and, and this wasn't a, 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 a panel of equals. This is an interviewer and an interviewee. There's someone who's written actual Doctor Who and me. So so it was a different dynamic and it just took me a moment to sort of get into that. And the thing that I most recall is I've been given this time slot. You know, it needs to go for 30 minutes. I'm like, yep, okay, I'll prep, I'll prep for that. And then they said, oh, a couple of things are run a little bit early. So if you can sort of space it out to 40, 45, that would be really helpful. It's like, okay, I should be able to do that. <laughs> and you know what it's like, Rob, and we see these when we do stuff like the list makers, which have a, you know, a fixed time to fill. Yes. For the first five minutes, you're going, I've done half my material. I've got nothing. I've yeah. got nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you get to five minutes to go and you're like, oh my God, how am I going to get the rest of this in? Yeah. So it's, it was exactly the same experience, which was, uh, yeah, yeah, very fun. But uh, look, John, John made it very easy. Um, he was very happy to wax lyrically about his wife, which made things very, very easy. And of course about his own work as well. And and I tried to hang the whole conversation around Ace and Sophie Aldred for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. And again, when you've got a character like Ace that's just had so many iterations across Doctor Who, that became a really easy thing to do. Nice. Now, before we get on to the, the rest of the day with Sophie and what happened once the event finished, we will mention that at the end of this conversation, we'll play you the audio of Dave chatting with John Blum. Unfortunately... I've had the audio sent through from Dwayne, and it's not from the sound desk. It's uh, just a mobile phone recording. So it's not up to our usual audio standards, but if you put on some headphones and and give it a listen, I think you'll enjoy hearing Dave chat with John. Yeah, it's not a perfect podcast recording, but it is a perfectly listenable recording. I don't know whether the interview itself is going to be any good. You listeners can judge that for yourselves. (laughs) But, But if you do want to hear my conversation with John... Uh, yeah, there, there is a recording of it at the end of this, and you're very welcome to listen and give us any feedback, I guess. Well, I've listened to it, Dave, and I thought you steered him along quite well. As I, as I mentioned offline, I think John Blum could talk for his country. If you just tossed a topic at him, he could talk for the next 20 minutes. So I think you did a very good job in steering him around a number of different topics and, and talking about Kate and talking about them working together and talking about himself on his own, talking about the past, talking about the future in some ways. He, he does drop some stuff that's coming down the pipe in some different ranges like the lethbridge Stewart range for example yes yeah there was a bit of a exclusive news piece there from mm. from john so um yeah look look please to have a listen and thank you to the guys over at sirens for uh, letting us have that material for ourselves as I, I understand the rest of it will go out on their feed so please do give that a listen yes it will so yeah you got a scoop there dave well done <laughs> thanks moving on to the rest of the day it sounds like sophie came back again and so what was that last segment like? So the last segment was entirely dedicated to audience Q&A. And, and there were some really good questions there. Some of them were very much about 
working on Power of the Doctor, particularly people wanted to draw out what Jodie Whittaker was like in person mm-hmm. and what what it was like working on that stage and seeing McCoy again and and all the rest of that. There were there were some other questions about various different things. Um, I did decide though that Sophie telling the story about the tank cracking in Battlefield is her version of Nicholas Courtney's eye patch story. You know, if that if that <laughs> one doesn't come out in an interview, then it's not a real Sophie interview. Yeah, um, yeah. So that, that was really good. Um, but the thing that also was really obvious to me, particularly by this stage of the day, is is how many young fans were there and were very enthusiastic. And and I say young, using the definition, clearly were not born when Sophie was playing Ace on television. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? It, it absolutely was. And, and a number of these people came to dinner afterwards, which, which I'll speak about in a moment. But just, just to see that, look, there were fans of our vintage and older who, as I said, I first met in the 90s going to cons in Sydney or they came down for Time Storm and you know, people who have been stalwarts of fandom for a long time. But there were a lot of new faces and, and, and I was just so amazed at the very large proportion of the room that were young people who clearly have come to Sophie Aldrin and Doctor Who in the McCoy era on VHS or DVD or, or something. They, they clearly did not see this going out and... That just blew my mind in a, in a really wonderful way. Did you get to talk to any of them in depth? Because this is obviously a question that we've batted about at times over the years. We, we once did an episode, our, our Times in Fandom, back in the 90s and such. And we've spoken about how podcasts are almost like the new fanzines of their day. We've spoken about how there are less events like this in general. Did you, and I might be building this up into nothing if you didn't talk to them about this, but did did, did it come across that this is a rarity for them to do this kind of event, perhaps? So I, I did actually end up sitting with a number of them at, um, at one of the two tables at dinner. And I didn't sort of say, you know, how did you come to fan or anything you know, really obvious or gauche mm, like that. Mm. But but no, they were talking with absolute enthusiasm. A number of them had been to the Janet Fielding event in Sydney a few weeks beforehand. And, you know, they were saying they want to go to other stuff. And they, they very clearly were as involved in fandom as you and I would have been at their age. That's really great to hear. I love hearing that. Yeah, it was, it was really, really cool. So after the event went on, we sort of like helped pack up and did all that, and that's probably not the most interesting thing to talk about. Um, <laughs> but, um, but we sort of went down. They had uh, a, a dinner booked with, with Sophie and John. Um, so there were two tables, and the idea was there would be two courses, and they will swap the guests over at the halfway point. And so, yeah, the first half, I was talking to John and talking to these, these fans who were at the table and catching up with Todd, who I hadn't seen for a long time. And then for the second half, Sophie was at the table, and just by pure coincidence, by pure luck, she was sitting next to me. So I got to have dessert for an hour or so sitting next to Sophie Aldred. And, you know, there are some guests who don't really bother trying to be mm-hmm. sociable. Mm-hmm. There are others where they know that they're being paid to be sociable and they don't want to be a dick, so they, they do their best to kind of be polite across the course of the meal. Then there are the ones like Sophie, and look, Colin Baker's another one that I'll put in that category, or Nicola Bryant, who genuinely are just lovely people and genuinely just want to have a conversation and just want to chat. And that makes the conversation so much easier. Um, so that was really, really lovely. I, I did sort of feel a little bit like, well, look, I've met her before. I've had dinner with Sophie before. These these people haven't. So I'll kind of let them monopolize, not monopolize, but make sure they get their fair yeah. um, chunk of the conversation. But but I did have a chance to have a bit of a chat to Sophie. And we talked a bit about Melbourne. And I asked after her husband, who, of course, I met when they came out for their honeymoon in, 
in Melbourne, and you know that was nice. Um, you had a kick of the footy in the park with him, didn't you? We did have a kick in the footy at the park with him, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know, it's it's someone I've legitimately met and, and can ask after. So that was nice. I I did ask Sophie a few um a few questions about the whole behind the sofa docos uh, extras that oh, I've yeah. I've been wondering about. Now I'm not going to reveal what she said because they are very very spoilery and in some ways kind of spoilt the magic for me in a way, but I was very keen to uh, hear about that. So we had a bit of a chat about that. And look, there were questions about her work and there were questions about her time working with different people. Uh, one of the more interesting conversations was just, uh, there was a there was a guy there who was trying to break into acting and just sort of talking about how he'd done a few things, but the, you know, the options to do acting work as a young person is just very, very tough. And Sophie was reflecting that, yeah, when she was his age, there was repertory work and there was theatre and there was panto and there was sort of all these places a young person could get a bit of a resume while they were applying for TV and the like, whereas that just doesn't exist anymore. It's very, very hard. Well, Sophie, on that Blu-ray interview she does, she talks about working men's clubs and, and doing stuff in those. Yeah, yeah. You know, so extraordinarily different sort of marketplace for, for acting these days. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, these are just the very natural conversations that starts from somebody, you know, well, it starts from Sophie going, so what do you do? And him saying, well, I'm trying to be an actor. And suddenly you're actually having a conversation about, well, what was it like in your day? What's it like in your day? How's it going for you? All that sort of thing. And um, then she's going you know, to the next guy, like, what do you do? Well, actually, I'm starting to be a forensic scientist. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> let's go there. You know, <laughs> or, you know just, just proper proper lovely conversations that's and, and nice. it, so it wasn't nerdy doctor who chat in quotation marks if i can put it that way no no it, it, it wasn't i mean there were good, doctor who topics good. absolutely but it was it was a proper conversation and i think we all felt like we'd spent time with sophie aldred the human being not sophie aldred the person who played a character on tv 30 years ago that's really um, nice it, it is and, and that's that's what i think sets aside these fan run events mm. where it really is just about meeting the, the actor or the actress or the guest or whoever and other fans and just enjoying that spirit and that vibe and and sort of all just being you know wonderful people in each other's company and it was really really obvious to me that Sophie was very happy to sort of mingle on her way in and out of places and the the organizers were kind of happy if she was sort of walking to the the venue or whatever and somebody came up to say hi I just want to say hi there was no sort of you know there was no mind of scuttling up ah, excuse me the, the guests were quite outstage right now yeah, you know, yeah. There, there, there was none of that um at the end of the day there are a few people particularly younger people who just came up and said look you know I haven't paid for a photo do you mind if I just get a selfie and she's like, of course you can, you know, come and come and have a photo, yeah. um, you know. And, and and again, there was no mind to coming. Sorry, sorry, it's forty dollars, forty dollars. Yeah, yeah. There, there was none of that. And, and look, I I saw that, and and I'd sort of been thinking during the day because I, I didn't buy an autograph or a photo because I've got those. I'm not going to pay to get you know another Sophie ordered autograph. But I then sort of thought, well, you know what? It would be nice just to have a casual photo because I've got one of me. And Sophie, when I was 17, mm-hmm. and so I just walked over and I actually had the photo on, on, on my phone. And I said, well, Sophie, look, if, if you're taking a few photos, would you mind reenacting this photo of us in 1997? <laughs> and she's looked at them and gone, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely, I will. And so it's like, oh, well, you need to be on this side and all the rest of it. And so, so we were able to get that sort of, you know, 97 versus 2023 photo. And, and, and again. That's classic, Dave, because I asked you on the podcast a month or two back, will you go up to Sophie with a photo and say, Sophie, this is us? <laughs> And, and you've obviously put the seed in my mind. And, 
and, and again, like to be perfectly honest, in in my mind, I sort of went in going, look, I haven't paid for any of this, so yeah. if if I don't get the chance, that's very okay. You know, others have paid money for a professional photo, so you know, I haven't. I don't. I'm not entitled to one. But she was very happy just to take very casual photos, and the quality is not going to be as good as a professional one, and it's not going to be digital or the rest of it. So you know, that's. I, I feel as though those who paid got a better value product. Mm. Um, they haven't been ripped off. But but it was lovely that she was able to do that. And again, the organisers were very happy to allow that to happen. It, it wasn't like a commercial event where you, you felt as though somebody was walking around with a checkbook behind you, you know, or a receipt book sort of saying, well, sorry, no, um, the, 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 ta- the talent isn't allowed to do that. The talent isn't allowed to talk to fans. Get, get, get away from the talent yeah. as they sort of, you know, drive them with whips and chains up to the hotel room. Yeah, that just sounds great. And it bodes well if the Sirens guys want to do more of this in the future. Or indeed, if anyone else out there sort of looks at the success of this and they have some contacts and put together something of their own in a similar vein, I think fandom in this country could do with that kind of thing. Yeah, I I think that the two events that they ran in the last month or so have proved that there is an audience there. I think that there is also a little bit of hesitation out there in fandom because a lot of those commercially run events were very, very dark and dirty, pay through the nose, don't get a lot of attention type events where, mm. you know, you're, you're one of thousands of fans being herded through queues. And so people are a little bit unsure. And so, look, I, I kind of saw it as, you know, not, not my mission, I think as profound as that, but, but you know, one thing I can do is, is, is to, you know, go on Twitter and to go on Facebook and to go on the podcast and say, I turned up and it was awesome. The next time they advertise these things, I encourage you to to turn up. And, and I think these, these guys are doing really great work. And if there are more, then I'll certainly get there if I can. Brilliant. And next time you're up in Sydney, we'll have to catch up. This was one of the rare occasions you were in Sydney, Dave, and we didn't catch up. No, our, um, our diaries just didn't quite align. But, not um, this time. Not this time, but I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will too. Well, that's brilliant. As mentioned, we're now going to play the John Blum interview. And again, the sound quality is maybe not what you're expecting from our podcast. So do put on headphones. Most of it is very listenable in that respect. And enjoy dave do you want to throw to yourself no that's weird (laughs) (laughs) okay then i'll do it here is dave on stage with john blum they've just read out kate's apology and they're about to launch into their chat yeah and look i can certainly remember the first uh, interactions i had with kate alden was back in the days of printed fanzines we had the sonic screwdriver was the printed fanzine of the doctor who club in victoria and kate alden was a vivacious letter writer down. I remember some of her very, very forceful letters defending attacks in season 24 when it came out back in 1987-88. So I remember that. But when she became an author and was actually writing proper, officially endorsed Doctor Who as an Australian, that was a huge deal for us to have an Australian. So there were people in the audience here who will remember that. But to have an Australian actually writing real Doctor Who was a really big deal. And an Australian woman, no less. An Australian woman, absolutely, yes. And so uh, always very, very for those of you who aren't aware, Kate and I are married and have now been married for 25 years, which absolutely destroys my brain. <laughs> so um, what we're going to do is just have a bit of a chat for, um, up here on stage. First of all, given that we are here at a Sophie Aldred event, we're going to have a bit of a chat about Sophie and Ace. 
and I've got some more general questions for John, and then we'll hopefully we'll have some questions from the audience as well. So we've got just over half an hour, so let's get started, John. You've written for the character of Ace, and Kate's written for the character of Ace over a number of years, and different iterations between the two of you. What is it about the character that you think has really put it amongst that top pantheon of Doctor Companions? And, and when I look out in the audience here today, there are very clearly those of us who were fans in the 80s who have grown up with Ace and she was our companion, but there are people in this audience here who have clearly come to the character much later on in, in, in her history. Why do you think she's so popular as it was written for her? I think one of the things that really defines Ace oh, for me is that this is a character who wants things and who cares. I mean, so many of the companions, on their, their function in the story is to, to play a part in the story. But with Ace, she is engaged emotionally on so many levels there. She wants things, she, she cares about the people, she has attitudes towards the people that aren't just related to what they're doing in the story. Basically, she was a full-fledged person in a show that, as Sophie said earlier, in those days, they didn't really allow that kind of, uh, that, that kind of woman to have the uh, central focus in the show. She was really a forerunner, that sort of character who could really make it her story. And it was really like to write her stories. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's interesting you talk about the different things and the different personalities that they've given to Ace. Uh, you said that just before you grew up as a fanboy of Kate Orwin and reading the new adventures. Yeah. The, the new adventures took Ace in a very particular direction where she went away from the Doctor for a while, she came back as a hardened space marine, and she was very, you know, very antagonistic towards the Doctor. Do you think that that was a very 90s thing? Is it something that worked, or does it really stand the test of time? I think there are some parts of it that worked really well and others that didn't. I think one of the things I, I did appreciate about this is that through the, the series um, up to the point where Ace first left for the first time, uh, it was very clear from, from the television show and from the first few books, there was actual dramatic tension between the Doctor and the Companion. You couldn't really do that before. You could have the Doctor have an argument with the TV, but, this was, but that, was, that would be a fight rather than something that's fundamental to the shape of who these characters were. And the Doctor and Ace had, were in some ways so good for each other, in other ways causes, had so much conflict with each other in terms of what they wanted and how Ace was growing up, that it was sort of inevitable that there would have to come, there would come a point where this would come to a head, dramatically speaking. And I thought the way what they did with Ace uh, in the, at that point there, in Paul Cornell's Love and War, which is still one of my favorite pieces of Doctor Who after all this time, uh, was stunning and did a wonderful job of um, taking, uh, taking the, the things which we had established about both these characters, having them collide head on and have a genuine piece of proper character drama out of it. And then the case went away for a few years uh, in uh, the story term. She came back with, with more of a chip on her shoulder about the Doctor, but older, more sophisticated, more hardened. And I think that the way in which that ended up working, which was, I mean, I wasn't so much fond of the idea of Ace becoming more cynical. But I, one of the things that works very well in dramatic terms for the character, this is a lesson that I got from, uh, I think it was J. Michael Straczynski of Pamela Five, he talked about this years ago. When you've, got a, when you've got a character, one of the best things you can do with it in story terms is drop them down a deep hole. And then they display who they are. They display their character by how they climb out of it. And to me, and I think to Kate as well, that was what the, the shape of the new adventure at that point on was. It was Ace having been, having fallen down this hole, and then finding herself again and coming out stronger from her experiences. And that's what uh, Kate's second novel, Set Piece, was really about, was getting Ace to, to reach the point where she had finally resolved these struggles she had been going through for all this time. 
I still remember reading this book. This was when Kate and I were friends online, but had never actually met in person. I mean, I had, at this point, I had read her first book and sort of gone, wow, this Kate Orman chick right? <laughs> and the second one, I remember just emailing her basically saying that I was saying how, how much this was, it was like the inside of my head had become the outside. This is exactly the story I wanted to see told, and I was, and she hadn't managed to tell us. And it was less than a year later that we fell in love. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And can I reiterate there what John said about Love and War? If you're a fan of the character of Ace, and you haven't either, either read the novel Love and War, or at the very least, this is the big finished adaption, I really encourage you to do it. It's a really good um, story for Ace. I, I agree with everything you said about dropping Ace down the hole. Did the fact that Doctor Who was existing as literature at that point rather than on TV allow the writers, do you think, to do a lot more with characters than you can get away with? Oh, it gave a tremendous amount of freedom in terms of being able to drive the characters onward. And the idea that this was not just a case of people sort of slotting in little pieces inside the existing story. This was Doctor Who trying to go into new territory. And the, the idea that you could do Doctor Who in the style not of 70s Doctor Who, but influenced by what was going on in 90s science fiction television, early 2000s television. You, you could bring in outside influences and you, you, you could there's a lot of stuff you can get away with in terms of content because at that point there was no real brand manager at the BBC overseeing everything. Uh, you could get away with almost everything, at least until the BBC noticed. <laughs> so, but there was there was a lot of stuff there, and it's not so much the edgy adult content into that sort of spectrum there, but just in terms of the sophistication and the fact that you could you could take the stuff that you would learn from from drama outside of Doctor Who and bring it to these stories. There was so much that we were able to do, and I think Ace's growth was a big, a big example of that. Yeah, and I think we were also very lucky with the. Uh, types of authors that we're going to get in that range. Oh, it's um, astonishing how many of the writers in those early books, for those of you who don't know, have gone on to spectacular television careers. I mean, there was, at one point in the new adventures, there there's this little writer's mailing list where we were swapping notes between people like Matt Jones, who went on to be the producer of Shameless, and uh, this Ben Aronovich, who now, of course, having started on Doctor Who, is now a best-selling novelist, and this fellow named Russell T. Davies. <laughs> so it was, it was an astonishing little period of just Interaction it's funny you mentioned Matt Jones because I was actually going to say something we discussed on our podcast recently was the fact that Matt Jones, who's an OPK author, I think he's the best person I've ever seen write for Perry because he's not a young male author who just, just wants to get in Perry's pants. And I think in the same token, Kay Norman writing for Ace had a whole different take on the character that I think was just so far removed from what the male writers were saying at the time. Yeah, I mean, this is something also that Paul Cornell mentioned about, um, uh, when, when he, who also did a very good job writing for Ace. Uh, and um, the, the idea that, that there was, and he had this, noticed this about Benny as well, that there were some actors who basically wanted to shag her and other authors who wanted to be her, right? He was very much in the be her camp. Yeah, that's just similar to that with, with Ace to an extent there. Um, I, in fact, wrote for Ace for the first time in my student film. Uh, this is before Kate and I actually met. I, for, for a student film at, when I was at the University of Maryland, I did a full-length four-part Doctor Who story, and I was writing the case, and it was one of those cases where it was, I, I admired the character so much, I was blown away by what Paul and the others were doing in the books already, and I really wanted to write someone who had, who had that kind of, of power to them. It was not a case of having a crush on the character or the actor like some of those other writers, but then this was a character I felt, yes, I want to write about this person. That's a very good segue into my next question. I want to move forward a little bit to the first time you wrote Solo for us, I believe, which was the big finish 
uh, audioventure Fearmonger, which was in February of 2000. Now, I've got a couple of questions about that, but let's just start by continuing to talk about Ace. What was it like writing for Ace's character 11 years after she'd been on TV? Did you feel the need to evolve her? Did you want to write true to 1989? How did you approach that? What was it like? What was it like? Well, my first uh, reaction to this whole thing was just to be flabbergasted by the fact that I was writing for Ace, and I remember sitting there having moments of thinking, okay, Sylvan Sophie will actually be saying these lines. <laughs> and just basically sitting at the keyboard going, freezing up as if it is an expression of absolute horrified glee at what I was doing. When it came to the character, though, what I was thinking of was that I approached that as being in sort of a missing adventure, but not one set during the TV show. I basically decided, right, I am writing this story as if it is between the, the new adventures novels Nightshade and Love and War. So I was able to write an ace who was a bit more sophisticated than she had been on TV, who was probably, I guess, 19 or 20 rather than 18 as she was on the last day of the show. She could be a little more sophisticated, a little bolder, and in some ways, um, I don't want to spoil the story for the heard, but she, she's able to take some risks that she wouldn't otherwise, and some of which backfire on her. So I was able to confront her with some of that element there. Mainly, though, my main reaction to everything to this, I have to get, say this now because I'll shave so on the back. I just wanted to say that I was absolutely floored by what an incredible performance that she I mean, I have written other things for other actors over the years, but never in my career have I had someone deliver exactly the performance I heard in my head. I got chills listening to her read these lines, and it was exactly what I pictured. How much latitude did you finish give you with the character of the story at that stage? I had a lot of freedom, I'd say. I mean, the uh, script itself, um, uh, they didn't give me anything, um, uh, any real restrictions, except they wanted, they thought something Earth God would be good. They said they did not want to rewrite a time restriction by student film. I was absolutely cool with that. I didn't want to rehash the same thing. I, I had a lot of freedom on that, that first outline there. And I think that for most of the writing process, despite my life being generally stressful at the time there, I was I was thrilled by how much how much flexibility and freedom I had in that story. Just to continue with a few moments while we're on that topic, when I listened back to preparing for this interview, I was um, curious but just how pressed in some of the plot points in this scene, in particular, there was one conversation that I thought almost could have been lifted out of Russell G. Davies' Years and Years series, which was written about 20 years later. Is it one that you feel was present at the time? How do you feel about it now? I am somewhat depressed at just how prescient and um, <laughs> basically still how relevant Fearmonger feels. I mean, so much of it is about stirring up other, this, the, the stirring up hate groups and so forth, and the politics that have been played in around that, both not, not just the American talk radio side of things, which fed into it there, but a lot of the stuff that has been rising with the with writing in Britain, I've been sitting there thinking, my God, I, 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 I was hoping, the, I, the last time I listened to this, I thought, my God, it's been 20 years, why does this still sound like it was recorded yesterday? Yes, yeah, so after 2000, the rest of the world hadn't really been exposed to uh, US talk radio, so yeah. it felt very new and different to us, but it was probably something coming from your background. Yes, uh, it's been far too mainstream. I'm afraid a fair chunk of that was actually reacting against my parents, because they were listening to the likes of Russian Limbaugh and so forth. I was, I had come down from the US, and I sort of crossed over from that sort of conservative culture, coming down here just around the time of the rise of Pauline Hanson, and I just it became this, I saw, I could see some common threads in this year. But of course, with the character of Ace, there was already this passionate resistance to injustice in the character, and resistance especially to racism when it came to uh, 
the, the, the family history that um, uh, that Ben Arnrich came in, her, 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 her friend Menisha, and uh, what happened to her, there was this tremendous energy to it. And I thought that picking up on that, keeping it relevant, keeping it connected to what was going on in the world around was the most, the most ace thing I could do. This character was connected to, to this world, and I wanted to keep that there. So you've obviously written for the character of Ace in the past. Your wife has written for her in the past. Now, we've been all speculating today about how much we'd love to have an Ace spin-off TV series. If you were uh, asked by RTD to give some input either into writing an episode or just to help him set that up, what would an Ace spin-off series look like for you as a writer? Oh my God, please make this happen here. <laughs> my, my first thought about, um, um, about an Ace series there is that I would love to see what kind of stories you could tell using the idea of a charitable earth. This idea of an organization that is responsible for charity and also would be very heavily involved in something like disaster relief would be able to be involved. That creates an opportunity for people to be troubleshooters on the ground in, 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 strange, in situations where chaos could be happening and alien stuff could be happening too. I like the idea of, of, of Dorothy McShane, who's running this, this company, in fact using this as a, a chance for people to be investigating what is going on in the trouble spots of the world. This could have global scope, so Disney Plus could, of course, throw lots of money out of there. Another thing that I was thinking of, one thing that, as, as um, uh, Sophie had mentioned uh, earlier on there, she, had, she was at one point being considered for an appearance in Sarah Jane Adventures, and that suggested to me the idea of having Sophie as the, being the, the, the sort of leader slash mentor position to a bunch of younger characters who were people who were growing up the way that she was. They're full of fire, energy, want to change the world, want to get to it, want to fight, want to fight for what they is, is right, have their own problems to deal with, have Ace as, in effect, their leader slash mentor organizing them, not so directly connected to their traumas, but the one who, but in the position, the one who knows and has the experience. I like the idea of Ace having, she has been through the fire, she can come out, she's come out the other side, someone, and now she's almost in the position of being doctor to these younger characters. I would love to see that. Especially that she would also, by this point, be in the position of the doctor knowing more than she's telling. So, so saying that, do you think you would pitch an Ace TV series to the younger audience, as the Sarah Jane Adventures were, or the older audience, like Clark Torchwood was, or, or stick to the doctor audience? I would aim it at one of the demographics we're most looking for, which is, this, which is young adults. It's doctor who was originally aimed, they said, the, the phrase that Robert Holmes used was the intelligent 14-year-old. I would aim for people that in that sort of bracket here, the, the kind of audience that watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and absolutely fell in love with it. The, 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 the sort of older end of the Hunger Games audience, the people who are capable of grasping stuff that is more sophisticated than a kid's show, but that still have that youthful energy and idealism. I, would, I think they would have to keep in touch with that kind of energy to a successful ace of that's, that's honestly one of your best assets because Sophie still has this incredible energy and commitment and I would love to keep getting that back on screen. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely the way to go. So come on, Russell, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he'll listen to this and give you a call. Um, just to move on a little bit from Ace to some other work that you've done, another, another character you've written for, and you already mentioned her earlier, that's um, Professor Billy Summerfield. Now, it often strikes me that there are a lot of people watching New Doctor Who now that will have never heard of Billy Summerfield. But without Billy Summerfield, we probably don't survive the wilderness here the way we did. And I think her influence on characters in the new series of Doctor Who has been considerable. As someone who's written a lot for Billy, again, across a number of different um, genres, what do you think of her character and her role in the history of Doctor Who? 
I think she was um, crucial to proving that Doctor Who could move on beyond the TV show. For those of you who don't have the context to it, Professor Bernice Summerfield, you know, many, an archaeologist from the future, who's a fairly fond of the 20th century, uh, is, uh, was the first original companion created after the TV show ended for the first time. She was created for the books, uh, later appeared in the audios as well. Uh, a number of them. She ended up having a series of spin-off novels, of which Kate wrote one, which is a fabulous walking the Balon. And um, she, I think, was the next step, really, of, of as Doctor Who's audience, particularly the books, was tending to grow a little longer, she was that little bit more sophisticated. She didn't have Ace's teenage energy. She had a slightly more guarded, a slightly older energy, and I found that fascinating to write for. She, she had, she was not by any means a perfect person, but she, and she had a, she had a mother, all sorts of possibilities for character drama as well. She was not just a, a type to slot into an adventure, but she was one you could tell an incredible number of stories with, and I, I'm still so proud of a lot of the many stories that we wrote over here behind. Do you think that River Song is a direct evolution of Betty Summerfield? I honestly don't know. I know that uh, Paul Cornell and Stephen Moffat are huge friends, but, um, and Stephen was obviously aware of Benny. But I think, they're, again, their approaches are quite different. I think, um, see, uh, uh, River is very clearly in love with the Doctor throughout, whereas Benny has a slightly more reserved position there, that she has a little bit more distance from the Doctor because she can see both that he's that he is an amazing person, also can be a very dangerous one as well. So I, there are some elements of River that I think are are very um, familiar. There's also a lot that makes Benny a unique character in her own right. I love Paul Cornell's idea that Benny, that Benny and River end up dating though. That was a throwaway thing that he mentioned in some interview. They did met in Doctor Who: The Legend of Time okay. audio Ooh. adventure. I haven't heard that one yet. It was, like a, it was like a anniversary for Big Finish. Ah. Cool. And Benny uh, was played by Lisa Bowerman, or still is played by Lisa Bowerman, yes. and it, who is, I, I cannot, I cannot see her crazy enough. But I can tell you one very quick personal story related to that there. My, uh, my now late grandmother, her last few years, she was saying that she couldn't, she wasn't reading my story anymore because it was just too hard on her eyes. Uh, so for her 90th birthday, I recorded a dramatic reading uh, of, um, one of one of my many stories. It was um, when Fito is mainly revolving around Benny's summit. Uh, I wrote, I got this, I got a bunch of my friends to, to read various parts there, and I messaged uh, Lisa to ask if she could read Benny's part in this. This is a small little cameo. And, but she came in and had a little speech to her son. And this is, this is, this is absolutely just, this is not for any kind of publication, there's no money involved there. She just basically said, for my grandmother's 90th birthday, she did this as a present for her, and just donated this, and I am still so much in awe of her for doing that. No, that's lovely. Now, when I was preparing for this interview, I found a quote that Kate gave in an article she wrote in 1993 for the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who. And I just want to read it to you and get your reactions to whether you think that was a product of the 90s or whether you think it's a greater reflection on where Doctor Who is today. So the quote from Kate is this. I'm standing at the photocopier pressing against the plastic warmer of the carbon with the palmers of my hands. Hot pages flick out from the machine to my left. Government reports on domestic violence, the psychological details of the battered woman syndrome, because I'm writing a Doctor Who book. Was that a reflection, do you think, of Doctor Who in the 90s, when it was off screen and being run by fans, or do you think that says more about where the show is today? I think it actually still says something that connects through to today. I mean, 
One of the things that most amazed me when the show came back was that it meshed so well with what had been going on in the books and to a lesser extent the audios. Um, Russell T. Davies has, I think, always been engaged with the world around him. I mean, he's done stories like years and years, which is still devastating to watch. But, uh, but the idea that he, that he has always had that connection there and found an energy which grounds Doctor Who in the real world and real problems, often in a metaphorical way or in a slightly, slightly over-the-top over the way, but there is always a truth to what he writes. And I think now that the show is coming back and Russell has gotten, if anything, more outspoken about the world, I think that that ability to sort of touch, touch truth and bring it into Doctor Who and, and to both Basically, the cross-pollination of both bringing the real world to Doctor Who and um, bringing that the, the Doctor Who-ish energy and larger life imagination into the real world, and bringing that kind of the kind of passion that we see in characters like Ace, even to dealing with things in the real world, and, and that, that big speech that that Rose gives at the end of um, uh, Parting of the Ways, where you talk about how the Doctor represents a, a better way of living your life, of actually of of not just sitting back and letting things happen. And just you know, standing, standing up and getting involved. That, I think, is Russell's energy. That was Kate's energy at the time there. That's the energy that I hope I still have at least some of, even though it's far older now than I was then. And I hope that the new show is going to continue to just grab life by the lapels like that and just keep keep on engaging with it. So after the new adventures, the BBC realized just how popular Doctor Who still was and how much money they could make from books, so they brought them all in house. Now, the first of the new BBC books was Terry Spix's Eight Doctors, which is a very sort of soft opening to the range. But the second is Vampire Science by yourself and Kate. What was it like being the first of, I don't mean because I don't want to Terrence, but the first little standalone book in that range, were you given a lot of energy to set up what that range was going to feel like and be like, or were you given a lot of direction? What was Vampire Science like to create? Oh, we had a huge amount of freedom. And it was, I, I look back on this and realize how how blessed we were to be in the right place in the right time and basically be in on not the absolute um, creation of a new doctor, new era of doctor, but the but the moment where it really gets brought to life. Kate and I adored the telemovie. Uh, we found we found again there was a there was a heart to it, which I was which I was thrilled to see. And when we got the chance to engage with this book there and talk with Phil Siegel about what he had in mind, we were able to get hold of Matt Jacobs, which I always wanted to do. Maybe sort of reversion fan, we'll see if we get in touch someday. Uh, we had a tremendous freedom to try to take what was there so far and flesh it out and bring it, bring it in extra dimensions and find, uh, find like, not just, the, not just to, to flesh out the service, but to find the heart of it. And I'm so glad we have that, had that freedom. No, that's fantastic. I've got a couple of questions to finish with John for the end of the chat, but are there any questions or comments from the audience at this point as to what we've discussed? Yep, Dallas? Is there any... And I think a microphone's on this way down to you. Is there any plot idea, thought, story, arrangement of, uh, that you've got that you still haven't been able to put into a book? Is there something you still want to get into a book? Oh, so how can yes. I not get in yet? Yes, I still have ideas. I mean, I haven't done much with Big Finish for a while. My my career has taken me in other directions, and frankly, I'm not nearly fast enough a writer to get as much stuff done. But I still have plot ideas really away in my head that one of these days I would love to I would love to get done there. I'm I've actually been thinking about what I would get to do if I got the chance to write again, especially writing for Ace. I would love to get some of that 
that MJ was talking about for a spin-off into a Pedro book there. And ironically enough, because unfortunately I missed Janet when she was down here, I just had a great idea about Tegan. So yes, the ideas are still bubbling away, and you never know, you may yet see there. As you may have noticed, uh, Kate has already had a, a big Finnish audio come out just recently, an audio novel, The Dead Star, with the second Doctor. And um, I have and I have some projects of my own, which I'll be, I'm sure we'll be talking about in a little bit, but, but, but also the idea that, that, that with, there's the possibility that we could do more, more Doctor Who good Finnish stuff as well at some point. You never know. If you haven't heard the Dead Star, go to bigfinish.com and get it. It is brilliant. I have to say, again, speaking as a Kate Orman fanboy, it was just, <laughs> it was literally wonderful to be listening to this thing with the lights out. Like, literally, just basically, basically before going, going to bed, we just, we just turn the lights out and listen to something like that. We go to sleep. Listening to, listening to the Dead Star, hearing the incredibly creepy and generally fascinatingly weird Doctor Who story episode there, with the author right next to me. It was, <laughs> It is just a delight. Also read by Michael Trout, so Patrick Trout. So, yes. so that one more question here. Um, I really like Model Train Set, which I think was on the short trips. Oh yes, yeah. Sophie did a wonderful reading of there. I mean, I, I love the reading of that. Either she did mispronounce my name. <laughs> oh, John Bloom. Yeah, it's Blum actually. So, so. Um, so what was the inspiration for that story? Oh yes, uh, for those who um, uh, have never encountered this short story, it, uh, it was one I did for the BBC Short Trips, and it was about the Doctor having a set up the ultimate model train set. And it was about the, the contrast between the seventh Doctor, who was the one who could who would who would take control instead of getting something, he would all he would all work more or less like clockwork, but not necessarily. He was the one who would actually run the train set. Whereas what the eighth Doctor did was in fact build a build a train set where little figures standing waiting for the trains could actually run it themselves and get it out of control in, in ways that I hope are suitably wonderful. This was inspired by a number of things, uh, one of which was my reflections on the, the work we were doing, fleshing out the uh, Eighth Doctor and the books, talking to the other authors and so forth there, and the idea of the difference between the Seven and Eighth Doctors, that inspired a lot of them. The other part of it came from my own train set as a kid. I had a wonderful old Lionel O'Gage layout and a fair number of the, of the things on there are things that I always wished I could have had. <laughs> so that was very cool. Hi, John. Um, just wondering, what was it like the first time that you and Kate wrote together? Both, you said yourself, you're a fan of her work. So how did it feel being both a fan and her partner? And what was it, what's that process like when you work with another author, especially you and Kate? Oh, the process has been very different at different times over the years here. But going back to those first times there, the actual first work that I did was in the New Adventures, in a couple of the books which only Kate is credited for as the author, I wrote a few scenes. Uh, like I wrote the prologue epilogue to uh, Return of the Living Dad, a couple of little bits in there, and a, a, a sequence in, um, uh, in uh, The Room with No Doors, which uh, wonderfully, uh, Paul Cornell is also a big King Owen fan, and was talking about how she was, um, I mean, just saying how the, this one sequence of the doctor basically dragging his way back to life after someone has tried to bury him alive and try, just triumphantly getting out of it moment there. He described that as one of the best things he had ever written. And I sat there going, that was me. <laughs> but in terms of how we wrote together, for the first couple of things, Kate was very much in charge. She was on top of them. Um, she basically, I would just write little bits, run them by her. She would edit them, in some cases mercilessly, and uh, then, and then be willing to put them into her books there. So she was very much a senior partner. By the time of vampire science, we were in 
we were engaged at that point. We were, we were absolutely running out of this, this, like, this cloud of hearts and flowers. Small animals would come up to us without fear. We were so much in love. And the writing process for that was so incredibly easy. It was the best case I've ever had of people's ideas sort of sparking off each other into sort of, yes, and, and we can do that. And um, just egging each other on, fleshing the details out, and working together incredibly smoothly. That was a great process there. Um, by the time of, by the time of our third book, after we've been married for a couple of years, there was before, no, no, that's not working at all. That's, I've got, I'd rather do it this way. And you're having much more to you know, actually thrash things out properly. And um, it was, it was. I think it made for a good book in case of unnatural history, which is the third one. But it wasn't done well. But it was not as as smooth a process. Not least because. Kate was also busy with other stuff that she was writing and working on at the time. So there's one point around natural history where she handed me the next chapter for the, 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 according to the outline, and she had written like a large chunk of probably chapter eight. And then point out, uh, you do realize we killed off this character in chapter six. <laughs> so, that was, so there were problems like that. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. So John, we've spoken a lot about what you've done in the past. What's coming up for you in the future? Ah, yes. Well, what's coming up for the future is, in fact, what has been coming up in the future for some time now, but has just been delayed a little bit and is now finally going to happen. Some of you may have heard that I am writing for the Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart uh, novel series. There, for, those, for those of you who haven't heard about this, uh, there is a series of uh, novels that, have been, that are telling the story of the Brigadier and the early days leading up to the founding of Unit. Uh, this series has been running for a while by Candy Jar Books. It's been a very good, good series up to this point, and the editor was a huge help to, to us a little while ago. Um, he actually asked me a while back if he could borrow a, a character from, uh, from Vampire Science, who was the head of Unit USA in, in the present day, and introduced a younger version of this character as Captain Adrian Kramer into the, uh, the Lethbridge Stewart book line. She's now working as a young officer uh, for the US Army posted to deal with the UN, gets involved with Lethbridge Stewart, uh, appeared in a book by a guy named Rick Cross, which I would really recommend. It's called Times Squared. But what's happened since then um, is that is that when because of those initial contacts there, uh, he's asked me to write a book for, for the line there, and that book turned into basically the founding of Unit. So I am getting to write the story of the beginning of Unit and and how it all finally does come together after after years of building. Uh, there were originally going to be two books that had either going to wrap this up. The, la the last two books were one was by John Peel, and the other and then one followed the following book up with one by me. Uh, John and I collaborated really well on our on these two separate outlines. The big news, which has which has only just been announced to some of you last week, and, the, and is otherwise no one else has heard this yet, is that my book has now become two books. So there's going to be a two-part novel covering the covering the the setup of units and the moment, the moment where it all comes together. These two books are called United Nations and Intelligence Task Force. <laughs> they were on, yeah, they were going, they were going to, they went, originally it was going to be one book, it was going to come out late last year. Uh, Andy had told me, okay, this is the finale, you can, um, you can go a bit over length. And I wrote the book, I gave it to him, and he said, not quite that over length. <laughs> So we worked for a while cutting it down. I managed to cut quite a few thousand of words out and sharpened the book in the process, but then we reached a point where it was still about 89,000 words long, it was supposed to be 70,000, and we realized that cutting it further was actually hurting the book. It was actually making it worse rather than better. 
So instead, I said, you know, we could put stuff back in, and, and the, the outline was already long enough for a book and a half. I had to throw out a lot of stuff along the way. We could just put it back in and make it two books. And I said it sort of half as a joke. They turned around and said, okay. <laughs> so for the last six months, I've been, I've been writing another half book very quickly. <laughs> And so now we have lined up for the end of the year on John Peel's book, which is still coming out online, sort of the first part of a trilogy now, and then the United Nations and Intelligence Task Force. And the other big story here about this, which I'm, this is, again, a complete exclusive. I have not told anyone this yet whatsoever. The character who uh, got, who was brought back for this, Captain Adrian Kramer. Uh, General Kramer originally appeared in my student film, Time Rift, that I mentioned earlier on in this, played by a dear friend of mine named Marcia Tweed. Uh, Marsha passed away a couple of years ago from uh, complications of diabetes. And it was because of, because Andy was so nice to her and that she, she had been so tickled pink to be remembered and he had, he had thanked her and got her permission as well and given her copies of the books and sent a very nice note to, his, to, to her, her mother and family at the funeral about the, the, the character that she helped create uh, was living on. And it was because of that that I asked to write this book, this, as a tribute to Marsha, my friend, and she is, so she is central to this story here, and so that means that Captain Kramer and, um, and the Brigadier are, are both at the center of this story that I've been living with for a few years now. And so please read it just for Marsha so you can see this character that I wrote was so much influenced by her and what she brought to it. She brought this person to life, and I think that when the book actually does come out, I urge you all to read just to see, see Marsha leave off the page. Now oh, that's really exciting. Thank you very much for sharing that. I do, I do encourage people to check out that range. Um, Robert Moroni is another Australian author who's also written for that range, some really good books. So it's a really good range with some good yeah. books. George Nano also was a, a yep, really absolutely. author. There have been a number of people. Uh, Sarah, Sarah Brunewigan, who, uh, again, from, Sarah, from Sydney. I have also written a story for it. Oh, you've written a story for the line there, yeah. In the short story collections? For a short story collection, but it was about yeah. dominators. Uh, so, yes. Was that another product they owned? Yes, uh, the, the, uh, Andy Frank of Allen controls the rights to the case of the literary estate, so everything that is in Lincoln uh, created for Doctor Who, which includes all the characters from Weather Fear, all the characters from, yeah, all the characters from Abominable Snowman, and the dominators. So they have the rights to all of those things as well as many more things that people like, like me gave them the rights to use. Uh, that's uh, for me. That's possibly the most surreal thing in my experience as a Doctor Who fan. It's not so. I've gotten used to the surrealism of, say, writing for Apes or any of, the, of these other characters I grew up with. I never in my life thought I'd be writing something for Private Evidence from the Web of Fear. That just is not on my radar at all in my life. That's all we've, all we've got time for. Um, but if you want to follow up anything that John has written or that Kate has written, their Charles Wiki pages have got very thorough lists of all their works, and I encourage you to check those out. Um, please do check out the Doctor Who Show podcast as well. But John, thank you very much for your time here. And thank you. I suppose you want a microphone back, don't you? Oh, I don't know what to do with one.